back to It's Not About the Bunny, a podcast about Twin Peaks. I'm Caroline. And I'm Brian. And at long last, we're going to talk about Fire Walk With Me. We're very excited. And we thought that we would do first a discussion that's just on the FBI section of the movie mm-hmm. um, so that we can devote a discussion of its own to the Lara section, which really deserves it. Yeah, well, we're going to have a lot to say. Yes. Uh, So we're just going to talk about the first 30 minutes, basically, Mm -hmm. of the movie. Yeah. Um, And we might still break up the rest of the movie into separate episodes of the podcast. Mm -hmm. In fact, we might, this might wind up being multiple episodes. Yeah, depending on how long we go. But uh, we'll see. Um, You know, I think there's a lot to talk about. Yeah. Uh, but luckily, the first 30 minutes of the movie is is fairly distinct. It's mm-hmm. almost like a prelude. Yeah. It's kind of detachable. Mm-hmm. In fact, I think you could you could lop it off and just start yeah. with the, the Twin Peaks theme when it comes in mm-hmm. and you're in the town of Twin Peaks. Yeah. I think that that would be... That would work pretty well as a standalone movie. I think so too. And that's something maybe we should talk about this episode is how essential is this prelude? Right. Uh, But first, maybe we can just talk about our general feelings about the movie. Mm -hmm. Um, Not getting too specific because we're going to cover all of it, hopefully. Yeah. Um, But I'll go first and say that this is one of my favorite movies. I mean, same. I mean, maybe a top five movie for me. It's certainly my favorite Lynch movie. Um, Although there are a couple that I love almost as much, but it's definitely my favorite Lynch movie. It's, it has some of my favorite performances. I think Mm -hmm. Cheryl Lee in this film is just staggering. Um, Yeah. I, I love it. I, I can't say enough good about it. I get so angry sometimes when I think about, the terrible reception it had when it first came out, Mm -hmm. which I think is just ridiculous. I think people didn't really understand what it was trying to do. I think fans of the show wanted new information and they didn't realize that they were getting a really beautiful story about suffering. Mm -hmm. And um, I just think it's, I think it's phenomenal. Yeah. This is pure uncut David Lynch. Yep. Um, maybe even more than the return in a weird way, just Mm. because even in the return, Mark Frost was involved in a lot of the writing. Yes. Um, and we'll talk about the return Mm -hmm. when we get to that, uh, and how, what the process there was like, because the return, I think is weighted more towards the Lynch side than the Frost side Mm -hmm. than the TV show, because, um, they would write the scripts together, but then I think Lynch pretty much was uh, had the uh, you know ret- <laughs> retained the right to do whatever he wanted when he was on set. When he was yeah. on set, mm-hmm. and he is famous for doing rewrites and shooting new scenes mm-hmm. and letting actors improvise a little bit mm-hmm. uh, when he's on set. Um, but here with this movie, yes, Mark Frost wasn't involved at all. No. Other than just the general influence of him in having created, helped to create the characters and yes. the general mythology. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one thing I love about it. I have said 
before that I'm more of a David Lynch fan than a Twin Peaks fan. Mm-hmm. Although doing this podcast has changed that a bit. Yeah. I think I would say, would call myself a Twin Peaks fan now. Yeah. But I, I would still rather watch any David Lynch movie probably than uh, any episode of the TV show hmm. uh, of the first two seasons. I'm not sure I agree. I mean, I would... Well, that's just how I feel. Yeah, sure. I think I would rather rewatch... Um the pilot of Twin Peaks than say Lost Highway, even though I do really like Lost mm-hmm. Highway. Um, but yeah, I think I think I would agree with you on that journey. I love Twin Peaks a lot. Um, there are a lot of things I like about it that David Lynch didn't really do, but um, I think I am a David Lynch fan first, and right. this is very much his movie. Yes, but I, yeah, I, I do think that that. That was my attitude, and now it's probably changed. Mm-hmm. And I would, I think, yeah, I would rate the TV show up there. I think it's harder because the TV show has so many bad episodes. Yeah, so it's or I don't know, but are That's they true. bad? They're not as good. They're not as good. Whereas I'd say David Lynch has never made a bad movie. Yes, and there is that peculiar tone of the show that is a little different, and that I think does come from a very collaborative, mm-hmm. collaborative process yes for sure um but i have really come to love the tone of the show and, mm-hmm. and that whole world but still this movie is is up there for me yeah. with um i don't know what my top five movies would be we don't have to get into it <laughs> it's not top five for me it's top 10 though yes um and i think yeah when you, when you just think about like great performances of naked suffering on film i think surely yes. i'm serious is up there with maria falconetti yeah no this Honestly. is one of the best performances i've ever seen absolutely yeah so i, I put this movie up there with come and see mm. or shadow of a doubt yeah um i'm sure i'm missing some some but... great ones yeah but yes it's uh, and as we get more deeply into it, we can yes. talk about how good some of that stuff is. What's frustrating is that it's hard to recommend to people if mm-hmm. they're not deep into Twin Peaks. Yeah, it's, um, it is. It is. And that's why I almost wanted to tell people, don't worry that much about the first 30 minutes uh-huh. because that's the, that's where you kind of, I probably need to have seen Twin Peaks. Mm-hmm. But after that, um, there's a lot of weird stuff, but you can just take it symbolically. And, yeah. and honestly, a lot of the mythology in the movie, mm-hmm. it it isn't explained well, or it doesn't, it, it only, uh, it just uh, opens up more questions than it answers, yes. which is one reason I think the movie wasn't so popular. They wanted answers. Right, people wanted answers and people wanted a next chapter. They wanted to see, you know, Cooper defeat is possession by Bob and they wanted, they wanted just more of the show. Um, I think the lore in um, fire walk with me is important, but it's yes, mostly important symbolically and emotionally rather than um, as information. Yeah. And even when I say symbolically, I don't mean like one-to-one. No, it's it's not, it's not symbolic in like a strict Freudian sense of this means this and this means this. Um, it all works together to tell you about the character's emotional state and 
the environment that they are swimming in. Yes, and, and really a lot of the mytho- the mythological lore type elements mm-hmm. here in the movie are, are were introduced in this movie that yeah. weren't part of the show before. Mm-hmm. Um, even things that you think were part of the show, like Garmambosia. Yeah. Of course, we saw the cream corn, but it really right. didn't have any meaning. Mm-hmm in the uh in the show right it was given meaning in the movie yeah. this is another another example of lynch doing something that is maybe a little random or mm-hmm. absurd yeah. seeming and then going back and trying to make it trying mm-hmm. to find find meaning for it to have find a human meaning for it right uh, things like that or the ring mm-hmm. that wasn't part of the movie right um and i don't even think that that comes back in the return no um so yeah it's the movie is um can be viewed apart from the tv show um i think someone who watched it would probably expect things to make more sense after watching the tv show and and they don't really no uh i don't think no (laughs) okay well uh i think that's enough of the background but um let's Let's talk about the first 30 minutes of this movie. Yeah. Uh, and just in general terms, I will say, I used to think that this was kind of weak compared mm. to the rest of the movie. Yeah. And it's still not the heart no. of the movie, but... I liked it more this time around. Me too. I really liked it. Yeah. I liked it a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and we'll get into some of the some aspects that are weak or that kind of pulled me out mm-hmm. in previous viewings but why don't we just go blow by blow let's start at the very beginning okay where we see uh the credits yeah credits over um television static mm-hmm. which you don't realize it's static at first it's no. kind of blurry and blue mm-hmm. and there's some really great music yeah uh angelo battlementi r.i.p 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 uh he composed some really wonderful music mm-hmm. for this movie. Yes. It's a huge part of why I love the movie. Yeah, I think even apart from uh, the music for the show, which obviously recurs, the music in this is very evocative. It's scary. Yeah. I, I think we can talk maybe in later episodes about whether this movie qualifies as horror. I generally think that Lynch is not a horror director. He's a melodrama director who uses horror elements mm-hmm. but um this is a very frightening film and i think battle of music is a big part of that yeah there's a real dread mm-hmm. and a bleak sense of hopelessness yeah to yeah. this opening theme and mm-hmm. to the music throughout mm-hmm. um and i i'm really glad that he composed new music for this yeah rather than relying on the the original score and, mm-hmm. although we do hear that some of those um, elements yeah. as well, but mm-hmm. it's part of what separates this movie, uh, makes it feel very different than the show, which, and that was, I think, a real, um, something that Lynch was really committed to doing, which is yeah. making it feel different. Yeah, and I think just to bring us back to the credits, I think it's almost kind of a mission statement. Right. We open on, uh, television static it pans out we see it's on an actual television that is then destroyed <laughs> yes uh lynch has an axe to grind here. yeah yeah he was he was pissed off mm-hmm. at 
how the TV show went down. Yeah. Um, that he gave up control in a way that he would never do again. Yeah. You yeah. know, and it wasn't the first time he was burned because I think Dune mm -hmm. in the 80s was mm -hmm. um, a creative nightmare for him. Yeah. He wound up refusing to have his name in the credits. But I think Twin Peaks, um, the television show, it was maybe worse than that for him because it was something where he not only lost creative control in the way that he kind of did with Dune, but it had to keep going after he had lost control yes. and his name was still on it and he was still involved, but without right. being able to direct where it went. Yeah. Well, and uh, you know, just mm -hmm. to, to add a little complexity, mm -hmm. he, he didn't, he, it was not like he was pushed off the show, but no. he disagreed with, the networks and their decision to end the mystery, yeah. to solve the mystery early. And there wasn't really anything he could do to prevent it from going that so way. So then he just withdrew. Mm -hmm. um, and that made the cast angry at him. Right. And we'll talk about that because it's very relevant mm -hmm. for this movie. But yeah, um, yeah he's, he is done with TV. Mm -hmm. He's done with the way it works. He's done with trying to fit his vision into that box. Yeah. And, uh, and I think a lot of this movie seems like a meta commentary on aspects of Twin Peaks that mm -hmm. maybe, I don't know if, I don't know if it's that he had second thoughts about it, about the basic vision of Twin Peaks. It mm -hmm. seems like he still stood behind the first season. I think so. And still does. Um, but maybe he, like us became a little uncomfortable with how how it was received how the audience thought twin peaks was just coffee and pie and you know a quirky small town and like just a slightly darker northern exposure or something yes yeah, so the movie seems like an intentional assault on that idea mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and i think even what we can get into this but even the parts that don't quite work um, they seem to almost intentionally not be working and that they are intentionally throwing off what a Twin Peaks fan would want to see. Yeah, absolutely. Although it is funny that some of it was uh, just due to... Necessity. Necessity because uh, Kyle MacLachlan didn't want to be in the movie at all. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll, we'll talk about that. Um, so the credits... Um, the credits are scrolling over a blurred television. Mm -hmm. um, I love the typeface. Yeah. <laughs> it's hard to talk about typefaces uh -huh. or like say why you like them. I There's something like about it that is compared to the Twin Peaks typeface, which is this that sort of goofy blocky mm -hmm. thing with the green and brown. Mm -hmm. It's got like outlined letters. Yeah. Which is, I don't know, a little cartoony, a little naive. Uh-huh. Um, this typeface is more adult, aggressive. Yeah. I don't know. There's something, it reminds me of Lost Highway. Mm -hmm. um, again, he's he's trying to differentiate the movie. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's static. Mm -hmm. um, and so what, uh, why is the, why, why are the credits playing over static? Yeah. What does it mean? I mean, there's a sort of in fiction mm -hmm. explanation. Right. Because 
Although I, later on, um, Leland mm -hmm. uh, destroys a television. Right. Right. Um, so I'm assuming that this is basically that scene. Uh, I don't, it's not exactly because I don't know. Once we get to that, it will refresh my memory as mm -hmm. to how that scene plays out. Mm -hmm. But I do believe that this, it's sort of like the credits are in media res. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Um, in a kind of stylized way. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, it's static. Then the axe yeah. destroys the television. Mm -hmm. And there's a woman screaming. Mm -hmm. uh, the timing of that is very sudden and brutal. Yes. And it's very clipped. The editing in this movie is great. Perfect. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, it's a very abrupt cut after the, you hear the scream. Um, really foreshadowing how how violent the movie is. Mm -hmm. um, but just to talk about the static a little bit. It's a disconnected television. Yes. Yes. This is something that Zoomers might not understand. <laughs> right. You see, there used to be TVs that did not connect to the internet, but connected to um, either cable or just a local signal. And um, sometimes that signal would cut out and you would just get this gray fuzzy stuff. And um, sometimes it would be partly gray fuzzy stuff and partly something else. Um, Sometimes but, you could watch, there might be like a channel that you is, didn't have, but um, yes. you just got like a little bit of it. So you could just kind of see it partly through the static. Um, Cinemax. Right. Um, I think that Cinemax must have had some kind of deal. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how they did it, but yeah. I think that there was some money changing hands. To I've, have wondered that channel I've wondered about that. I've wondered about that. Half visible. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, enough about that. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so this static television is disconnected. There is a signal mm -hmm. that should be coming through, but isn't. Yes. Yes. I don't know. I, it feels right. It's evocative. Mm -hmm. It's like a lot of things in this movie. It's hard to put your finger on what it means or why it feels like emotionally valid well again when i say that it's it's kind of a mission statement it's not just that the tv is destroyed we are seeing a television that is supposed to be doing what televisions do right. which is to give you a story but it it hasn't done that right it's like lynch is saying twin peaks the tv show failed in some way right and so now i'm going to rectify this failure in a way that television couldn't do right i think that's right um, although I think throughout the movie, we have examples of messages not getting through or being mm -hmm, garbled. Absolutely. Um, that there are multiple layers. Mm -hmm. There always are. And they are not all visible and they obstruct each other mm -hmm. in some way. Yes. Um, I, it also makes me think of the scene from uh, from season two where Leland has been caught i think mm -hmm. and he is like looking through the wall a hole like yes a hole in the wall yes so that disconnection that he has he's mm -hmm. like gone some in some way although that doesn't really fit with his this is a movie that is complicating and muddying the mm -hmm. distinction between leland and bob so maybe yeah. i don't want to go down that no i road. think 
I, I mean, I think that's an important part of it. We, we've talked before um, on this podcast about how the horror in Twin, Twin Peaks and in all horror television and cinema and literature is about crossing boundaries and mm-hmm. how so much of the imagery on the show and in this film is about um, signifiers of borders and kind of making them totemic and imbuing them with some kind of dread. And I think the television can be understood, the television screen as something that is um, a similar um, object denoting a border between one thing and another thing, mm-hmm. between the yeah. um, the thing that has been filmed and us seeing it, it, it separates us from that because we're not in the room with the thing that was filmed. We're not a part of it. Yes. Um, the screen is a, a boundary line. Right. And this film, it's about boundary lines being crossed or destroyed. Yeah, right. It's sort of a breaking of the fourth wall. Right. Um, to have, to, to show a screen on a screen. Mm-hmm. Very meta. Mm-hmm. But then that screen is disrupted and it almost feels like uh again it's like bob coming towards the screen it's this idea that lynch wants you to feel like the fiction is breaking through Mm -hmm. its fictionality into your reality those boundary lines are the things that keep us safe um and so when they are broken that signifies some kind of dangerous disruption mm-hmm. you know that's the same thing with the focus on the ceiling fan that's in the hallway in the palmer house that hallway is what separates lara's bedroom and leland's right. bedroom they're not supposed to come together mm-hmm. right i wonder if there's also something about the tv screen that is it's supposed to capture an image, it's supposed to freeze Mm -hmm. something real into an image? Yes, yes. And that's very much a recurring recurring thing in Twin Peaks, the show and the film, is um, Laura herself, but several other women, being kind of encased in a a frame or in some other packaging, (laughs) literally packaging. and making them into things that just exist eternally because they no longer exist right. in time and how that is kind of inherently a violent action that mm-hmm. encasing because the only way to make a human being into something that's eternal is to kill it right so uh, yeah a tv set mm-hmm. is a vehicle for um a TV set produces a commodity or it, yeah. it uh, transmits a commodity mm-hmm. to a consumer. Yes. By the time you're on TV, you're a commodity. Yeah. You're wrapped in plastic. And I think, so what's interesting here is Lynch is sort of mixing or uh, blending his feelings about being, his art being commodified. Mm-hmm. Uh, with the story of Laura Palmer Mm -hmm. in a very personal way. Yeah. But what that means is that this act of rage destroying the TV, which is Leland's rage, Mm -hmm. becomes David Lynch's rage. And I don't know what to make of that. Yeah. Um, Yeah. 
because Leland, uh, well, I don't know. It's interesting to, to think of Bob, how does he fit in with this commodification process? Mm -hmm. He is, he's the one that kills Laura. Yeah. He's the one that wraps her in plastic. But he could only do that at the end of a process yes. that was a social process. Yes, right? absolutely. So he's sort of the, um, I don't know, the God in the machine. The, mm -hmm. Somehow it doesn't work without him, but he's the part that's chaotic. Yeah. And that isn't, well, that's the contradiction, is that Bob is outside of the bounds of society and mm -hmm. always breaking through them. Yeah. And committing a murder, obviously, is this transgressive element. He transgresses the boundaries, like you said, the mm -hmm. familial boundaries, mm -hmm. transgresses the boundaries of, of being a person, like to be possessed. Yeah. He's um, permeating you, your skin, which is supposed to keep you separate from what's outside. Yeah. Just like art permeates your soul. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. And, 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 you know, as part of cultural, how culture creates the consumer. Right. Um, but... At the same time, Bob is enabling this. Bob and the system mm -hmm. seem to be in tension. Yeah. And they are. It is a contradiction, but it's a contradiction that functions together. Yes. Necessarily. And they wind up being two sides of the same coin. Mm -hmm. Right. It's it's like the, um, the system needs Bob right. in order to complete processes that the system needs to complete in order to exist. Right. But um, Bob being there allows everybody other than Bob to keep their hands clean. Right. If Bob killed Laura, that means nobody else did. And so they don't have to feel guilty. Yeah, it is interesting. It's like Lynch, as the creator, has to sort of sympathize with Laura and with Leland mm -hmm. and Bob. Yeah. So uh, on the one hand, he's raging against being wrapped in plastic. Yeah. But at the same time, he's maybe also, because that scene, we'll get to it. But mm -hmm. when Leland, is that, that's when he kills Teresa Banks, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. But it's after he sees, he sees Laura. With Teresa and Ronette. Yeah. Right. And uh, we'll have a lot to say about that. But there's a possessiveness there. Yes. It's like the possessiveness is the rage as well. Mm -hmm. So that's the part of Leland that maybe Lynch is can uh, empathize with. Not, not well, empathize, but like just you're an artist. You have to tap into that. And, and you have to somehow see yourself in that darkness. Well, and I also think, you know, we're talking about how Twin Peaks is so much about um, crossing boundaries and finding horror and crossing boundaries. And I think that's right. true. But I think what that also means is that um, Lynch as an artist is trying to blur meaning right? Um, and to make us think about the ways that meaning is not fixed and that we can't rely on those boundaries the way we think we can. That's the point of horror is to mm. horrify you by making you realize that yeah and he is maybe raging against um an interpretive impulse on the part of critics and fans of the show to say okay well this means this right um 
it was Bob, not Leland. Right. It was magic, not just ordinary run-of-the-mill incest. It um, it was a cult, not reality. He's mm-hmm. he wants us to not be so comfortable with that, and mm-hmm. this movie is it's partly about making us do that. Right. Yeah. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> was there anything else we wanted to say about this? Uh, no, we can move on. All right. So Gordon Cole shows up. Gordon Cole shows up. Yeah, and we see him from the side. Uh huh. It's an interesting shot. Yes, it is. Almost like a Wes Anderson shot. Mm-hmm. Because he's in profile. Right. I don't know. It's just, it's uh, weird. Yeah. Not what you usually see in a David Lynch movie. No, it's it's interesting. Yeah, I don't know what to make of it. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah, I'm not sure either. It's a little goofy or... Right, I mean, every, everything with Gordon Cole is goofy. Yeah, it's, it's like a heightened reality. Yeah. That same way that Wes Anderson movies are. It's just a little, mm-hmm. like, a performance. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's a little bit of a palate cleanser after the intro. Mm-hmm. And now maybe the audience is thinking, okay, this is a character I know. This yeah. is a show that I know. Right. I have my bearings. Uh-huh. But that's rapidly going to change. And I think the tone of the movie will steadily change yes. from this moment mm-hmm. forward. Yeah, I think so. And it just becomes more tense. Yeah. More laden with doom mm-hmm. and dread. Yeah, I agree. Um, what the hell is Chet Desmond doing when we see him? He's like by a school bus. Okay, I don't know. And there are crying children in the school bus. They're and, busting some kids. I don't, right? And, well, there are a couple of scantily clad women outside the school bus who appear to be getting arrested. Okay. But why are, why are they on a school bus? Why are all of these people in this scene in the middle of a field? What's happening? Were they taking a field trip to like Bordello? And um, <laughs> they're, getting, they're getting arrested. It's so interesting. I think this is supposed to um be like some wacky. of that quirky some of that wacky twin, twin peaks, peaks energy humor. yeah maybe but at the same time it's really off-putting it is and it and the it it does seem to allude to some kind of uh like are they sex workers right and that's that's and why are they so, being arrested that's what's so what's interesting to me too because like sex work is something that comes up again and again in this world and it's treated not always with like complete seriousness, but um, with much more seriousness than this. Um, sex workers in this universe are women in danger. Mm-hmm. But these women, who are they? Are they sex workers? Or are they just, are they clubbing? What are they doing? I don't know. They're a side gag. They're a side gag. Yeah. So it's already a little off uh-huh. and you're starting to question maybe unconsciously because mm-hmm. it goes by so fast. Right. Uh, but I, I think I was questioning, is this the same helpful FBI that right. I'm used to? Of course, right. we talked about how the FBI wasn't really that helpful in the mm-hmm. in the first two seasons of the show. Yeah. But at least you basically believe that Dale Cooper had good intentions. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. And was trying to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. Is Chet Desmond trying to do the right thing? I don't know. Well, it, he's a cipher. And now we should talk about casting. Yeah. Why 
Are we looking at Chris Isaac? Right. So, um, again, we mentioned that uh, many of the cast were kind of mad at David Lynch. Um, I think others wanted to move on for multiple reasons. Mm -hmm. Kyle MacLachlan did not want to be a big part of this movie. He had to be convinced to do as little as he did. And what this does strike me as, at least on some level... Uh, it's maybe something that in a first draft was just Cooper. Right. Um, and so it had to be rewritten for this new character. But they did rewrite it. They did rewrite this it. This is not Chris Isaac saying Cooper's dialogue. No, no. But I think as the film was originally written, it probably was Cooper investigating this. And then once Kyle MacLachlan only wanted to do, you know, a scene or two, um, they had to figure something else out and cast a new guy. And they chose Chris Isaac, and they chose famous Chris actor. Famous actor. <laughs> famous. No, wait. He's famous for being a musician. Yeah. And only kind of famous. I mean, he, no, those songs pretty, were everywhere He was pretty in the famous. 90s. Yeah, in the 90s. But he was would you famous. have considered him like... He's apparently a super nice guy. I'm sure he is. Uh, which, I mean, even in the 90s, it's not like he was, I don't know, on the level of... Uh, who was famous back then? He wasn't like Jay-Z. <laughs> now I'm thinking about Jay-Z in this role. <laughs> <laughs> Probably would have been about as good. Yeah. No, that would have so been here's great. the problem with Chris Isaac. He's not a good actor. Mm. And that's, that, I think the last couple of times I watched this movie, his performance really pulled me out of it. Yeah. And that's why I thought this section was week mm -hmm. um this time it didn't bother me so much it, didn't bother it was me either. better than i remembered mm -hmm. and i think i i came around to just taking in this this performance as another as if it was intentional as another element yeah. that's just off that's not quite right and it's supposed to make you think i i believe that things just aren't the way they're supposed to be yeah it's for, almost for like whatever a reason. brechtian mm -hmm. You know, I'm pretentious, so I say Brechtian. Yeah. What does that mean, Brechtian? Can you explain Well, it? you know. <laughs> no, I know it's what you distancing. mean. It's, it's, it's heightened reality to create distance in the audience so that they don't become so emotionally absorbed as to forget what the message is. Right. Yes. And it's, or, or even, you know, um, it's another example of a distortion in yes. the signal. Yes. Yes. There's something... That should be coming through, but the elements that are conveying it are malfunctioning in some way. Mm -hmm. It's a glitch. Yeah. It's, yeah, it, it, I don't know that. Obviously, this is me sort of trying to make peace with a bad performance, but. But no, I think it's, I think Lynch is a very meticulous director. And right. I think a lot of the time when people say, oh, so-and-so gave a bad performance in a Lynch project. Right. Very often they were acting exactly as he directed them to act. That's true. In fact, uh, this is this comes up in the return mm -hmm. with the uh, what's the name of the Tammy, Tammy. <laughs> and uh, how this I was another person who's a musician mm -hmm. uh, that is just friends with David Lynch and mm -hmm. he cast her and yeah. uh, people made fun of her acting mm -hmm. and she gave an interview saying that she felt bad because she just showed up and did what David Lynch told her to do. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm sure that's what Chris Isaac did. Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, casting, wish I could remember that woman's name, but, you know, casting Chris Isaac, casting musicians or people mm -hmm. who have a kind of 
star power yeah. is done on purpose. It's mm-hmm. it's the same reason we see David Bowie later on. Yeah. Although Chris Isaac's not on that level in terms of celebrity or charisma. Mm-hmm. But Chris Isaac is just a little otherworldly. He's yeah. a little uh, there's just something about him that uh, puts him at a distance, makes yes. him seem like above nor- the yes. above the crowd. Right. And he is also handsome in exactly the same way that Kyle McLaughlin at that age was. Um, He has this sort of um, boyish, uh, clean cut look to him, but Mm -hmm. with a little bit of a weird edge to it. That's true. Um, And I think that was intentional. He's obviously a replacement Cooper and he works as a replacement Cooper on multiple levels. He can do basically the same stuff Cooper would have done. Right. Um, people react to him in similar ways. And um, he also highlights for us that he's not Cooper. He's not Cooper. He is not nice. No. We actually, I don't know his motivations. Mm-hmm. I Like I said, he's kind of a cipher. Yeah. Um, why is he in the FBI? Mm-hmm. Cooper is an open book. He'll yeah. tell you why he why what his mission is and what his values are Mm -hmm. uh i don't know uh about about chet desmond right um we see him play a pretty mean prank Mm -hmm. on um Kiefer sutherland's character yeah you know is that is he just a mean guy Uh or was that in reaction to the situation was he just was it good-natured hazing mm-hmm. is he kind of a fratty guy yeah. what kind of a guy is chet desmond right we don't we, know we don't know we don't know. he's very aloof mm-hmm. um but that was sort of chris isaac's image kind of aloof yeah had kind of a retro 50s vibe yes. which ties in very well with lynch's aesthetic mm-hmm. um but yes yeah, so he's he's the cooper role but obviously not Cooper, and that's another thing that's off-putting. Yeah. And then I, I forget the exact order of events here. Um, at some point, we see we meet Sam Stanley. Yeah. They well, they come to the um, the airport <laughs> where right. they're gonna. Um, they're they're all meeting and they're meeting Gordon Cole and yes. his friend Lil. Um, Gordon Cole is increasingly not funny to me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <I'm> so, <laughs> I know. I'm finding. <laughs> I'm like, let's well, just get on with it. There's one joke. He's loud. <laughs> it's the one joke, yes. Yeah. Uh, right. So, well, let's, okay, let's talk about Lil first. Okay. Then we'll talk about Sam Stanley. Yeah. Lil, I interpret Lil as a, a pretty mean-spirited parody of of people of viewers of the show who were trying to yeah um, i i agree with who that. are trying to uh, decode decode it yeah yeah i think so i think so um and i want to take it that yeah. way just because it's so goddamn goofy yeah right and stupid mm-hmm. <laughs> that i think it must be on purpose yeah it it is especially you know you see chet um decode Lil's little performance and it's all stuff that's really banal yeah. <laughs> you know like like things that could obviously been just expressed in a straightforward yeah, way yeah why not or yeah. if it's if it's supposed to be secret maybe just hand him a 
a dossier yeah, or something. Yeah, uh-huh. And it obviously wasn't supposed to be too secret because um, Chet just shares it, you know. He just tells his partner what it is. Yeah, I don't, I don't get it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make any sense no. uh, from a narrative perspective. Right. It doesn't really fit in with the tone of the rest of the movie. Mm-hmm. But I think that's that's got to be on purpose. Yeah. Um, it, I, again, it's another thing that is a little self-consciously wacky. Mm-hmm. And that's supposed to... Get, that's there for, the, for a viewer that wants more of the TV show mm-hmm. to grasp onto yeah and then fall into a deep pit right right because what you keep thinking when you see this is there's got to be more to it than what they just said right she's got to be there for some other reason um and you can get lost in things like this and just focus on them instead of realizing the important things that are in front of you right and it's it's just silly. I don't know how else to put it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I guess it's not just, it's just, uh, for me, it's tonally mm-hmm. off-putting. Mm-hmm. And I that's why I see it as something, another smokescreen, I guess. Yeah. Another smokescreen yeah. uh, in this early reality mm-hmm. that is supposed to be lull us into a false sense of security, mm-hmm. even though we're already a little not secure because why is Chris Isaac here? Yeah. But we know Gordon Cole. Uh, we know the FBI. They're the good guys, mm-hmm. ostensibly. Um, and look, here's something funny. Yeah, right. Although it's not funny to it, me. No, but... it's not funny. And it's um, it's very aesthetically jarring. Um, you know, the colors are so bright um especially compared to everything around her yeah it seems like it's an exaggeration Mm -hmm. of the kind of thing that people liked in twin peaks yeah of like a kooky character or Uh something that's weird Mm -hmm. but then you find out that it It actually had something something. yeah right right but he's doing it in a way to almost like rub it in your face like yeah is this is this the kind of thing that you like (laughs) yeah fucking freaks um <laughs> right it's it's like you know he came up um and crossed to with the dreams that cooper had about um the red room or the other mm-hmm. place and put things in them because they seemed cool looking or um right. somehow evocative yeah. to him and then in the second season suddenly he had to say okay well this was a symbol for something right. Um, and I think that was part of what he didn't like about being forced to solve the mystery. He had to take all of these things that he really put in there because they were emotionally resonant in a way that even he wasn't really sure about and make them just like a one-to-one symbolic message. Yeah. And, and again, I think he can do that in a way that's very compelling. Mm -hmm. Um, like he does with the cream corn and saying, okay, actually this is the food. This is these pain and suffering mm-hmm. of human beings that is feasted on by these right. spiritual entities. That's really interesting. Right. I, um, but yeah, it is kind of goofy when um, the way that some of the dreams get decoded. Yeah. Uh, and so, yeah, it's like here, he's spitefully reversing the process instead of showing you something that looks interesting and cool, mm-hmm. but is hard to understand. And mm-hmm. then later filling in the meaning, it seems like he just, 
started with the information that had to be conveyed yeah and then was like mm -hmm. well what if uh she scrunches up her nose yeah and that means it's um gonna be a bad time for us right yeah but it's it, it, he didn't start with with uh trying to create something visually interesting right and and he also again um it's important that the information that is conveyed by Lil does not actually help them in any way. No, it's completely banal. Mm -hmm. there, there was no reason for it to be decoded mm -hmm. or for it to be encoded. Yeah. Um, it's just the rundown of the case. Yeah. And it, it tells them what they could have already known or um, figured out very, very quickly. Oh, the, the people there, they're not going to like you very much. They're going to give you some trouble. And, oh, you're going to have to work hard. <laughs> you're going to have to walk around a lot <laughs> to figure this one out. It's like, well, yeah, it's a murder case. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, uh, they're off mm -hmm. to Deer Meadow. Deer Meadow, the anti-Twin Peaks. Right. And so we get to meet Sam Stanley, mm -hmm. played by Kiefer Sutherland. Yeah, in full weirdo mode. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of him in this movie. But again, that's another element that wasn't as bad as I remembered. And he's not bad. He, no, he's, he's not, not bad in the way Chris Isaac is. But Kiefer Sutherland used to play these nerdy characters. Yeah. Against type. I, uh, but that was his type, though. But I don't well, think I he, feel like at this point, he wasn't in, good at it. In the early 90s, it was more against type than it is now right um i mean obviously this was pre-24 so i guess his type now is you know um quiet talking tough guys um, torturing a muslim before torturing, a bomb goes off torturing muslims before a bomb goes off yes um but i mean he was kind of like a cool edgy leading man right um to some extent um but he also in the 90s and into the early aughts did yeah the occasional supporting role where he was just a a nerdy weirdo like there's this there's dark city Dark city is what i'm thinking of. um and I, I do like him in dark city i do love that movie i just think i don't quite buy it that mm -hmm. that's it it's not that he's bad i just expect him to torture some muslims <laughs> i just i think he's very credible as that kind of fbi agent um i i don't know my knowledge of Kiefer sutherland's <laughs> roles is not deep he's not the most talented one in that family i liked him as or the, the hottest i liked him as the voice on the phone in that stupid Colin Farrell movie. Oh, yeah. <laughs> There's that blast from the past. Oh, my what God. Was it called? Phone booth. You couldn't make that movie now. You couldn't make it now. I don't know because um, <laughs> Michael Bay did Ambulance. That's true. <laughs> which is the same kind of yeah, so but, dumb, it's brilliant. But there are still, what I mean is, there are still ambulances. There are no, there, oh, I see, no I see, I see. Booths. I thought you meant that like the concept couldn't be done. Yeah. <laughs> phone booth doesn't make much sense now, but. No. Zoomers don't know what a phone booth is. Anyway, I just think that he is, um, I always can see him acting. Sometimes. Yeah, for sure. But he's fine. He doesn't have that much to do anyway, so mm -hmm. it doesn't matter. And again, it's another element that's weird. Yeah, two new characters. Mm -hmm. Where are the old characters? Where, where are our friends? Where's Audrey? Mm -hmm. Will she come? Will she, uh, will she show up later? Yeah. No. Where are you, Audrey? She definitely won't. No, she won't. Too All right, long. so okay. Um, I have a lot of notes here. They're not all in order, but basically, they go to Deer Meadow. Mm -hmm. And again, it's the it's, anti -twin, um, Peaks. the anti Twin Peaks. Twin Peaks, high meadow, flat, 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. You know, that's so obvious. Now that you <laughs> pointed out, I never thought of it. Yeah. Yes. Well, but it shouldn't have been like Valley. Lone Valley. Lone Valley. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. So it's interesting. I had remembered Deer Meadow as just being more realistic in a gritty way. Mm-hmm. Like this is more how, or uh, these are just the kind, like the kind of people you might meet in rural or small town Washington State, but that weren't featured in the show. Yes, but and that's true. Mm-hmm. But also, it's even weirder than I remembered. The people in the Deer Meadow Sheriff Station are so hostile. Yeah. And I don't know why. I, this time around, I think I concluded that this whole town is being colonized by the Black Lodge. Yeah. I think there must be something like that going on. Um, because they're not they're not hostile in a way that is necessarily aggressive although um the sheriff does kind of come close to that they're just they're almost somnambulant like they um they just react to nothing they they don't react to politeness they don't react to pressure um they are the opposite of helpful right and they don't really seem to care about anything. They're almost like NPCs. Yeah. Right. <laughs> They're just there to be an obstacle. Mm-hmm. They don't have motivations. Right. Yeah, I don't know. Um, it, it's like they don't have a society. You know, we've, we've talked about how, without even knowing it, the show Twin Peaks is almost about the uh, early stages of late 20th and early 21st century uh, atomization. Um, it's about a community kind of falling apart before it realizes that it's falling apart. Um, and it's about the process of becoming the sort of town where nobody knows each other. Mm -hmm. Deer Meadow is already there. Yeah. Deer Meadow is the, um, yeah, this is the small town as ghetto. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Essentially. It's a place where somebody like Teresa Banks could go to disappear right um which twin peaks is not yeah it's unclear whether there's a proper town Mm -hmm. um or if it's just some trailer parks and a sheriff's station right right there's probably a little more to it Mm -hmm. but you know uh there are towns like that yes there are uh there might be yeah there might be there's probably a gas station Mm -hmm. yeah yeah um there might be an intersection. <laughs> right, but but nobody really seems to know or care about anybody else. Um, you know, they go to this one diner to find out information because Teresa worked there. But um, there's there's just nothing there. there. There's no community there, as far as we can see. No, and there's a real sense of immiseration. Yes, absolutely. Of the denizens of Deer Meadow. Yeah, yeah. Um, and again, it's, it's realistic. Like mm-hmm. these are places that exist, people that exist. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think, you know, we saw some level of poverty in the TV show. Mm-hmm. I think the, the lowest level of society in Twin Peaks is probably Shelley and Leo. Yeah. But they seem to own a house. Right. And I think they are, um, 
Shelley is in a kind of artificial immiseration in that I think Leo is deliberately keeping her there. He, right. he, he could provide for her much better than he is. Yeah, he's is got a steady is. job. She's got right. a steady job. Right. They're um, not wealthy or even really middle class. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're, yeah. It, it seems like, you know, Deer Meadow is a place where maybe people don't have jobs. Yeah, maybe. Maybe. Or you may have a lot of older people. Mm-hmm. It seems like maybe some disabled people yeah. living in the trailer park. Mm-hmm. Um, the the uh, Haps Diner, I guess, is a place where you just like drift. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Teresa Banks was characterized as a drifter. Yeah. Which is, I mean, not sh- what does that mean, really? Mm-hmm. Uh, a person with no place to go. That's what she was. Right. But she was uh yeah probably trying to get away from something Mm -hmm. some situation right yeah no uh it's an awful place Mm -hmm. but it's awful in a familiar way yes at the same time there are these elements to it that make it feel it's that magic touch that lynch has Mm -hmm. of taking the mundane horror yeah and making it feel also like the super mundane horror, mm-hmm. the super, like there's something supernatural about it. Yeah, I agree. I agree. Well, let's, uh, before we get ahead of ourselves, um, let's get back to the sheriff station where right. we have Sheriff Cable. Yeah, the anti-Truman. Cable Ben Steele. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think the name is That's a very evocative name. And this is yeah. where I started to, when I was putting the pieces together... You know, like the end of Usual Suspects. Mm -hmm. Ah, Sheriff Cable, Mm. like an electrical cable. Right. And uh, I'm sure other people have thought of this. (laughs) And this is the introduction of the electrical pole that we're going to see a lot in return. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, it's it's part of the mythology of the show that these spiritual entities that live in the Black Lodge can somehow travel through electricity yeah i think uh, that's i'm just that trying seems to, to be the know, implication yes it's never completely spelled out that way mm-hmm. but in the montage that we get a little later here you know i think it's it's it seemed pretty obvious to me yeah, that the so. this electrical pole is significant because it is a portal yeah the idea of and i again you don't want to get too literal with some of this stuff no of course not but i think Portals are a big deal in Twin Peaks. Mm-hmm. Obviously, in the show, there's a literal portal. Yeah. But in the movie, the painting functions as a kind of doorway to another world. Mm-hmm. Um, the ring is not a portal, but seems to somehow give, allow the Black Lodge entities to control someone yeah. or mark them mm-hmm. in some way. Right. And the electrical pole mm-hmm. in Fat Trout Trailer Park seems like it's allows for some crossing over yeah and we also see the the flashing light in half steiner yes yes um and sheriff cable right going back to the npc element of mm-hmm. the sheriff and the sheriff's deputy what's interesting is that you keep thinking there's going to be a confrontation mm-hmm. it's like the same scene plays out a few times where I mean, I guess there is a confrontation at first where uh, 
Chet Desmond does the nose yeah. trick. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the, right. The Vulcan nose pinch. Yeah. On the deputy. Mm-hmm. But then after that, there's like a number of scenes where Desmond is like, we, we need the body. Yeah. And the sheriff's like, you're not taking that body. Mm-hmm. And Desmond says, well, we're definitely taking that body. And then, and then they take the body. And then they take the body, right. Uh, and there's a scene that was cut that's in the missing pieces. Yeah. We'll do a yeah. set of episodes about the missing pieces. It's amazing how much was cut from this first 30 minutes. That mm-hmm. makes it a little more coherent. Mm-hmm. But it's... I think it's kind of better that there is no real confrontation. Yeah, I agree. I agree it just that. makes it weird. It's like, mm-hmm. it's anticlimactic. Yeah, and it um, it adds a weird ele- element to the hostility of the people in Deer Meadow. Yeah. Their hostility is obvious, but ineffective. Yeah. Like, they don't actually slow anything down in any no. kind of real way. They just make things unpleasant. Yeah, and it almost seems like they never intended or Like, they didn't really have a plan for no, I mean, I slowing think, them down. Right, there's something odd. And I remember when we were watching it, this, I think, is when you said, oh, they're under control of the Black Lodge or yeah. something. But why did they want that body? Why do they want to keep it? Yeah, at first they just seem like the local good old boys. Mm-hmm. And they're just territorial. Mm-hmm. They don't want the, you know, this is their jurisdiction. Yes. That sort of thing. Yes. And, you know, we mentioned this briefly in our recent episode about Ben Horn, but um, the politics of people in the Pacific Northwest. Uh, mostly gets understood by people outside the area as being like Seattle, Portland, Mm -hmm. you know, this sort of like hippy-dippy left-wing or pseudo-left-wing progressive culture. But in rural areas, it can be extremely reactionary. Right. And I think, um, yeah, again, the Deer Meadow Sheriff Station is maybe more representative than the Twin Peaks one. Mm -hmm. Um, They may not even necessarily have any reason to be hostile to the feds coming in telling them what to do it's just they are yeah it's it is i think you're right there is something recognizable to me about this knee-jerk hostility that Mm -hmm. they have Mm -hmm. um like it's just free-floating yeah resentment Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm -hmm. but at the same time yeah it starts to seem more sinister more like you know, it's one thing to just say, well, don't stick your nose in our business. Another right. thing to say, you're not taking that body. When it is already clear that they don't give they a don't shit give about a shit. Teresa. She's, right. She isn't anybody's daughter or friend or it, it is absolutely nothing like the scene in um, the TV show where they're fighting with Albert over mm-hmm. Laura's body. Right. Um, which I think it is supposed to parallel that. Um, Laura's family and her doctor and, you know, Ben as a representative for the family. They Mm -hmm. don't want the autopsy because they want to be able to bury her. There's nothing motivating the people in Deer Meadow that's anything like that, as far as we can tell. They they don't give a shit about a funeral for Teresa Banks. No. Yeah, it's... 
It's sadder. It is. It's a lot sadder. She's not Laura. She's right, and I think I think this is another sort of um, deliberate parallel to the show, and a deliberate, I think, rebuke to fans of the show mm-hmm. who just wanted more time with their faves. Um, I think it would be very easy to watch the entire show and completely forget about Teresa Banks mm-hmm. because really all she is is another dead body that brings the FBI into this case and makes it right. a federal case rather than just a local one. Um, but she was a person mm-hmm. and it's sad that she died and there was nobody to claim her and nobody who cared about her or missed her. Right. Apparently. Yeah. Yeah. I have to think more about her role because mm-hmm. we, she wasn't commodified the way Laura was. No. Her death was a different kind of death in a way, although mm-hmm. it's connected through Leland. But, well, it's, um, but she was, but I, well, uh, she was killed because she was a sex worker. It wasn't like, she wasn't yeah. a public commodity the way Laura was. Well, it's, um, the process of commodification, especially when we're talking about like the objectification of women is something that um, our misogynist capitalist society sells to us as something that we should want. Um, to be a commodity is to be desired and to be, that's the only value that is often given to young girls like Lara. Mm-hmm. Um, you're sexy, you're desirable, um, everybody wants you, but that makes you into a thing. Whereas somebody like Teresa Banks, the fact that that isn't happening to her isn't because she's being treated like a real person. She's being treated like a failed commodity. Yeah. She's being treated like something that has no value that can be sold. And so she right. just gets thrown away. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, anyway, we'll have more to say about that, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the, right, the sheriff and the deputy, I wonder if their ineffectiveness is because they know they that they are working for the Black Lodge and they have other ways of affecting the situation. Maybe. Like, there's something so like smug. Like making ab- Chet Desmond disappear. Yeah, there's something <laughs> smug about them. Yeah, it's like, yeah they know that they have the upper hand here. Mm-hmm. Maybe that could be. Uh, let's talk about the diner. Okay. Haps diner. Haps. <laughs> yes. The, the anti double R diner. Yep. Um, we see a woodsman there. Yeah. Okay. Um, so this, this place is like, this is a gray liminal space, right? Yes. And the woodsman, they have not appeared on the show yet. I don't think, um, but they are, an important recurring visual mm-hmm. element in the film, and they will recur even more prominently in the return. Yeah, uh, and I think this is the first time we see one, and he's just kind of in the background. Mm-hmm. Um, well, there's this weird gray room. Yes, that they have to go, go through, through to mm-hmm. get to the diner. It doesn't make any sense. Well, it's uh, again, it's um, that's what liminal means. It's it's a boundary it's it's a place between two places mm-hmm. and um that's something that again comes up over and over again in this movie that's what the the space above the convenience store apparently is where the right the black lodge freaks all hang out and even though we see the exterior so mm-hmm. we know this is just a place right um there's something of 
about the way that uh, that Chet, Desmond, and Sam Stanley just kind of sh- we just cut to them in this little mm-hmm. uh, foyer. It feels like it's on another planet. Yeah, it really does. And there's the lighting, mm-hmm. the flashing lights that yeah. Lynch loves to use. Um, and that usually seem to signify something supernatural. Yeah, it does seem like when they were in that weird foyer, they entered into another dimension, possibly a hell dimension. Yeah, it's very dimly lit in there. Mm-hmm. Unlike, but in general, all interiors are dimly lit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. In this movie, or, or right. in this section of the movie. Right. Much different from Twin Peaks, where mm-hmm. sometimes it's very bright, like especially in the in the double R. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm looking at a screen cap and there's actually a projected, the, the name of the diner is projected onto the wall or is that, or maybe that's just painted. It looks very strange. Yeah. Could be either. So they meet some weirdos. Right. Well, first there's an old guy that they talk to in the, the little liminal area. Mm-hmm. Um, and he says something that I don't understand. I meant to go back and try to mm-hmm. figure out whether it's intelligible at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't think it was intelligible to me. Yeah. We may have to circle back on that at some point. Um, and then they talk to the waitress. Yes. Who is the anti-Norma. The anti-Norma. And it's so, I mean, it's almost comical yeah. um, in Twin Peaks how beautiful Norma is. And it sort of adds to the story of Norma's life as somebody who is probably meant for better things than working mm-hmm. um, behind the counter of a diner in a small town. Yeah, um, It sort of gives her automatic pathos, which I think Peggy Lipton adds to with her good performance. Um, but Norma is beautiful. She's not especially warm, but she's not cold either. Mm-hmm. Um, she runs a Meals on Wheels program. She helps people. She's good to the girls who work for her. Um, she has a lot of people that she loves. Um, this woman, I feel like she has a whole story. Um, even she's not really like the people in the sheriff's station in Deer Meadow and being sort of just ambiently hostile um, in a quiet way. Right. She's, I don't know. She's angry. <laughs> she's, I don't know. I love her. I love her too. <laughs> <laughs> this actor is hilarious. Yeah. Uh, shout out to Sandra Kinder mm. playing Irene. Irene. Uh, it's a great performance. Mm-hmm. It's exactly what it should be. Yeah. Um, yeah. Right. She, <laughs> it's just funny how ridiculously not welcoming she is yeah but she is not exactly mean and she does no. help them out a little she bit. helps them more than anybody else in dear meadows yeah she does but i mean like compare compare this scene where she talks about Teresa, um to like if something happened to shelly mm-hmm. and police needed to go interview norma yeah um they would play out very differently. Yeah, this woman is completely <laughs> jaded. Mm-hmm. Like she has been beaten down by life. I sort of get the sense that this is not the first diner waitress who's gotten herself. Yeah, <laughs> right. 
Well, then there's the guy mm-hmm. at the counter. Yeah, he's very interesting. Says something. What he say? he says like, "Are you here about that little girl who died?" The little girl, and it's and, and then he says it again, and he's he's accompanied by a much younger woman, and maybe she's like his caretaker or something. Maybe he has some sort of dementia going on. Yeah. Um, it's so. But it adds creepy. to the unreality of the scene. The unreality, but also the gritty realism. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's the same at the same time. At the same time, right? That, yeah, you meet broken people in real life. Yeah, right. You, um, but in in the context of American cinema, it often seems like the, it must be super a supernatural event to meet a person like that. Yeah, and it it adds to I think the kind of ironic sadness. Um, surrounding Teresa's death, that the only person they encounter who seems to yeah. care also seems to be completely disconnected and from it's, reality. It's not even clear clear if that's if, if he's he talking does about care. Teresa. Right. No, it's unclear if he's talking about Teresa Banks. Mm-hmm. He, the way he says little girl, it's like she yeah. wasn't really a little girl. Yeah. It's kind of poignant if he is talking about her. Because she was a little girl to at think some of her. Point. Yeah. yeah. Like, it's focusing on her not as a drifter or mm, a whore or whatever, an addict, mm-hmm. but just as a little girl. Mm-hmm. But then actually you brought up the possibility that I had considered, which is that maybe that's something else that he's talking about. Maybe there's like a more dark history right. in this place. Maybe this place used to be like Twin Peaks and some yeah. little girl died and everybody knew about it and cared about it, but it's well, not that place anymore. I don't know. Although now I'm thinking... A little boy dies in the return. Yeah. Um, and it is something that a lot of people see and care about. Yeah. Yeah. Although it's only because they happen to be there. Right. Right. And actually, I don't know. That one, that scene is ambiguous because I don't know if it's in Twin Peaks or Deer Meadow. Mm-hmm. I think it's in Twin Peaks, even though. Yeah. Um, what's his name is there? Yeah. Well, I think one of, the, one of the stories of the return is, you know, this this entire story is about boundaries breaking right. down by the time of the return. There's very little separating the yeah. peaks from deer meadow. And I think right. that's on purpose. That's a good point. Yeah. And the, re- the repetition of the line mm-hmm. almost makes it seem like time is repeating. Yeah. And really this whole scene felt very much like the return. Yes. Yes. In terms of pacing, the sense of dread, mm-hmm. sense of sadness. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that that feeling that maybe something is wrong with time here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And um, yeah, I agree. And it also is kind of on a meta level um, dealing with audience desires and audience's sense of satisfaction because what it's provoking in the audience is what the audience must feel about the movie as a whole, which is, I already know all of this, you know, I've already seen all of this. I don't, I don't need another story about a a dead girl because that was already the pilot of Twin Peaks. I want something new. Yeah. And Lynch keeps reminding, you know, you, you need to see it again. Yeah. Not only do you need to see Laura's story. You need to see Teresa's story. Even the girl who died first. Mm -hmm. It's like, Lynch is somehow incapable of letting a dead woman be a MacGuffin. Yeah, yeah. 
And good for him. Because Laura was the original MacGuffin. Mm -hmm. And Teresa was a MacGuffin for Laura. Yeah. And now we have to spend time with Teresa's body. Right. Because they're not commodities. Yeah. They're not, you know, in Laura's case, something that is wrapped in plastic and turned into an object. And they're not, in Teresa's case, something that just gets thrown away because nobody cares about it. They're, they yeah. were real girls. Yeah. Irene calls Teresa's death a freak accident. Yeah. Which made me think she was, in a more subtle way, trying to throw off the FBI. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, I don't know. How would it be a freak accident? Right. But maybe, maybe she just doesn't know that much about it. I think maybe she doesn't. Maybe she, yeah, maybe she doesn't know anything. Maybe she just heard that Teresa was found dead and she assumed a drug overdose. Maybe dead in a river. Oh, yeah. she was high on uh -huh. cocaine. Yeah. Whatever. Um, Irene also mentions that her arm went numb. Mm-hmm. Which is a real clue. Yeah. Though Chet Desmond doesn't know what to do with it. No. But that ties in with uh, with the series. Yes. Um, although, uh, what does it mean exactly? <laughs> well, um, Mike. Yes. He had to cut off his arm. Right. Because his arm was the part of him that was evil. Um, and then his arm becomes, you know, the, the man from another place. Right, but um, other characters have their their arms go numb. Mm -hmm. I'm gonna, you know what? This is like a little detail that I feel like we should. Bum bum It seems to always be a, a sign of doom that someone someone's arm goes numb. Yeah, I mean it's um. It's an easy symbol because a numb arm can often mean like a heart attack or a, uh, some kind of infarction, a stroke. Um, um, oh, there's twitching arms and numb arms. Yeah. <laughs> uh, we may have to start. Okay. Laura, Laura's arm is numb later in the movie. Yeah. Um, I don't know. But, okay, well, this is embarrassing. I feel like I should be on top of this. Uh, was it a Josie? Was it her arm? Oh, man. Okay. We're going to circle back and we'll Somebody, have a whole Somebody's episode. arm being numb is associated with them being preyed upon by the Black Lodge. Yeah, yeah. We'll have a whole episode about arms. <laughs> are, yeah. the, are the lack thereof. Uh-huh. Yeah, I'm going to make a note. So the next time we record, we can revisit this. Okay. But anyway, it's it's uh, it's a real clue. Mm -hmm. But also, it, it, it's unclear whether Irene is really wanting to help them or not. Right. All right, let's get out of halves. Mm-hmm. I don't like it there. No, it's not a nice place. Uh, let's talk about Harry Dean Stanton. Oh, man, the great Harry Dean. Also RIP. Yeah. There are so many people now, and it seems like it's just increasing. Well, obviously it is. They're all getting old. Um, but in the past like year or two, so many people from the show and the film who were gone, and it's just, um, it's sad. Mm -hmm. But Harry Dean is... Harry Dean Stanton is such a great actor mm -hmm. and he's been a part of so many great films and TV and he's always just such a joy to see mm -hmm. whenever you see him. Yeah. 
Yeah, and here he is the owner of the trailer park, or maybe just the manager. Yeah, it's unclear. It, it is unclear. He um, he seems to be the first person in the fat in um Deer Meadow. The Fat Trout Trailer Park is the trailer park. Um, it's still in Deer Meadow. Who is acting like a recognizable human being, even though he is He's extremely weird, weird. He's extremely weird, but he doesn't seem to be deliberately hindering them. <laughs> no. Yes. Yeah. I don't think that he is working for the Black Lodge. No. At least not intentionally. But he seems to be almost hypnotized or mm, sleepwalking. Yes. Like yes. he's just not uh, observant or mm -hmm. alert to what's going on around him. Because yeah, he seems to like forget partway through which person they're interested in. Right, and when <laughs> jumping ahead, when Cooper comes after mm -hmm. Desmond disappears, um, Cooper notices that the trailer park or the the trailer mm -hmm. of the Chalfonts, yeah, was gone. It's gone. Yes. And that's the trailer that Desmond was investigating when right. he disappeared. Right. And Harry Dean Stanton, who I guess has a name, I forget the name of the character. <laughs> he's always Harry Dean Stanton. He's always Harry Dean. He seems like he hadn't noticed. Yeah. And it's like, dude, if you own a trailer park, you're going to notice when the trailer is gone. Yeah, you're not getting rent. Right. And also, I mean, I don't know. Like, I lived in a trailer park. Mm -hmm. uh, so maybe it's not common knowledge, but when you. You don't take the trailer with you when you leave. <laughs> no, they're not like they're not like RVs. Well, I mean this, uh, right? This is a, a these are rental properties, uh -huh. right? Yeah. All the trailers are owned by the owner of mm -hmm. the park. Yeah. And you pay rent to stay in a trailer. Mm -hmm. And when you leave, you don't take the trailer with you. Right. And and if you did, then you would be in trouble. Mm -hmm. Right. So he, he, it's like he didn't notice somehow. So while he's not actively evil, he is somehow under some kind of thrall or something. He's he, got some kind is, of brain fog. He is at the very least a very bad landlord. He's very bad. Yeah, well, he has to fix that one woman's water, right? Right, right. <laughs> another touch of realism. Mm-hmm. Uh, Carl, yeah. that's his name. Carl, thank you. Carl Rod. Carl Rod. Yeah, and oh, and there's some connection between him and the log lady, like because he he's Rod. No, Rod it's from like the secret history. It doesn't. Oh matter. yeah, no, I know, I know. Like they both got taken up in the same UFO, right? Or something. Yeah, something like I that. Know. I guess being an, ab an abductee would explain why he's so weird. Mm. Uh, he's very funny. He offers him a cup of Good Morning America. Yeah. And then says says it again when he brings it. He's like, here's your Good Morning America. <laughs> I know. <laughs> that, I love that line because it seems like the kind of thing David Lynch would say to you if he brought you coffee. <laughs> mm -hmm. And he repeats it mm -hmm. to like in case they didn't hear the joke. Yeah. <laughs> he's just such a real person while mm -hmm. being completely strange in the way that real people can be exactly yeah and just he seems kind of out of it mm -hmm. and you but know he what? um it's another scene i think or a series of scenes that makes us kind of miss cooper because mm -hmm. cooper would probably find him a lot more delightful than yeah chet and sam do mm -hmm. and he doesn't really have much to add about the the uh the case no 
No. But he can let them into the the trailer. Uh, another thing I noticed is that the deputy sheriff also lives in the trailer park. Yes. Which is very interesting. That is interesting. Which is another reason I kind of think there's nothing else in this town. No. <laughs> it's just the trailer park, mm-hmm. and most people live there. Yeah. Maybe Sheriff Cable lives in his own house somewhere. Right, right. But it's it's people who don't have enough money to live in Twin Peaks. Yeah. I wanted to say that Carl was a slumlord, but mm-hmm. he's he does seem like almost on the same level as the people that are renting from Right, there. which makes me think that maybe he is just the manager, that somebody right. else owns this place, and maybe he gets like reduced rent to run it. Yeah. Yeah, well, class can be weird. I mean, it my can. grandfather yep. mm-hmm. owned a trailer park that <laughs> was maybe actually on the level of tr- Fat Trout. Maybe not quite. <laughs> mm-hmm that bad but uh you know when i was a kid i thought it was it was great yeah yeah it was so so fun to run around there but as an adult yeah i was like those trailers were pretty grody mm-hmm. pretty it must have been pretty depressing to live there right uh but you know my it's not like my grandfather was rich he owned that one little piece of land with uh-huh. some junky trailers right he had been uh heating it and heating and air most uh-huh. of his life. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think to most people, they would look at him and say, oh, he's a working class guy. Yeah, but he sure. was a landlord. Mm-hmm. And, you know, was probably better off than the people that were renting from him. Sure. And I think a lot of the people that uh, that rented there, it was called Shady Acres. Oh. There's a Lynchian name. Yeah, I'll say. <laughs> I think a lot of people where they're at the end of their rope yeah and we're just yeah. passing through right right Teresa Banks may have yes stayed there mm-hmm. uh anyway let's see I think uh we didn't talk about the fingernail no god I hate fingernails I hate fingernail horror well it's uh you know they had to <laughs> he had to do it to you he had to do it to me I know. It's a callback to the scene in the show where mm-hmm. they pull the letter out from under the fingernail. Right. So Lynch obviously is saying here, if you thought that that was mm-hmm. upsetting. Right. What if we just pull the whole fingernail yeah, off? Yeah, I don't have to worry about network standards anymore. Yeah, yeah it's really bad. Mm-hmm. And um, Sam Stanley is kind of a creep. Yes. Yes. I'll <laughs> say. excited. Uh-huh. Maybe he's the anti-Albert. Hmm. Say more about that. I there's nothing more okay. to it. I okay. don't know. He's, um, he's aloof the way that Albert is, but there's no passion behind it. There's and there's no, there's no um, deeper moral system that yes. he adheres to. Right. Yeah. Although it's hard to say because we just don't get to spend much time with this character. That's true uh okay yeah there's not much else to say about that they they do an autopsy in this really gross shed yeah which is i guess the um the what's the name of it there's a name for it but it's where they where the coroner right autopsies Mm -hmm. coroner's office um and it's just a shed right it's really disgusting right like they don't even have like a room in a hospital 
Yeah, and it's at that scene where the tone is really starting to shift. Yeah, you get lots of the uh, great low pulsing mm-hmm. sounds yeah. that Lynch is known for. Yeah, the sound is really good in this movie. Yeah, the sound design is incredible, and just lots of scenes of uh, of Desmond walking from place to place. Mm-hmm. Um, when he comes, when he goes back to the trailer park in the evening, there's this beautiful. It really light. is beautiful. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's the lighting is really great there. In the exterior shots, especially in the evening, there's all these pink tones, mm-hmm. but also green. There's lots of pink and green throughout yeah. this section. It's like a little fleshy, mm-hmm. but also decaying. Yes. Yes. That's got to be on purpose. Yeah. And the... Well, I, I'm trying to figure out what order I want to talk about. These last couple of elements mm-hmm. before we move on. Um the, well, let's let's make this an edit point. Okay. So it turns out this conversation was a pretty long one, all about just the first half hour of Firewalk With Me. So we're separating it into two episodes. You can hear the rest of our conversation in a couple of weeks. But for now, we wish you nothing but the very best in all things. Bye. Thanks so much for listening. We are expecting to release new episodes of It's Not About the Bunny every two weeks. So if you like what you've heard and you want to keep listening, please subscribe uh, wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a nice rating and review. If you don't like what you're hearing, that's cool, but please, please keep it to yourself. Bye.